with your permission, I yeah. should go back and talk about some shit you probably already covered a hundred times. That's fine with me. You were born 67 years ago. Yep. Is, yes, it, is it really true that your ma grabbed you and, and booked for the fire escape? And yeah, yeah, that was, well, I was dad? two months old then. That's when she left my dad. My brother was five years. I was two months. And uh, he had been a problem with drinking, drinking and being a bully and actually being abusive to my brother. And uh, she decided with the new baby that I wasn't going to let that happen to him. I'm not going to let happen to you what happened to Pat, my brother Pat. So uh, at, the, at, the, at a point when a crisis arose, uh, she left uh, there, where they lived on Riverside Drive, went to 112th Street, and that's where she was when he came pounding on the door. That was her, grand, her father's house, my grandfather. Really? And in response to that, he stalked her a lot and would stand across the street you know, menacing her. And uh, in response to that, she took me in her arms my brother by the hand, and somehow got down the fire escape into the backyard, through the backyards to Uncle Tom's Packard. They had arranged this. I mean, it didn't happen spur of the moment. It was probably an hour's time passed. Tom, come pick me up, you know. So Tom was down there in the Packard and took her out to, as we used to say, the country. <laughs> <laughs> out to uh, Peg Willett's farm, actually, an old friend of hers from business. Well, you moved to New York then about four years later. And it says here you spent 25 years at the same address? Yeah, well, I actually now I, the I same spent, house. I spent all all those intervening four years were in New York City. Right. We just moved around a lot. Oh, we didn't I, have an address of our own. No, I was born in Manhattan, uh, New York City, New York County, New York State. Born there, and uh, raised there, and every every year of my life, thirty years actually, more than twenty five, uh, until I finally closed down the residence I had there, and uh, made California my permanent home. But you lived in this was on 125 years at 121st Street. Yeah. In the same house. Yeah, same building. So in Miami. Nobody spends 25 years in the same place anymore. What's the one thing about that house that really describes that house? It was it the basement, your room? Well, it wasn't that. It wasn't a house. It was an apartment building. Oh, oh okay. So it was a six-story apartment building. It was an elevator building, which which made you a little bit special, <laughs> but not so much. Uh, but it was a nice building, and it was. Um, we lived on the second floor in apartment 2C. The nice thing about it that I remember was having my solitude. Uh, my mother, after she left him, had to go back into the business world to work. She was an advertising uh, executive secretary, and right. she got a, immediately got another good job. But she had to be gone, and, and when you're an executive secretary, you don't leave at 5 o'clock. You're there till 6.30, 7, you know, taking care of things. And so uh, I had all that time after school on my own with the radio and the world of imagination. And I uh, enjoyed my solitude. I'm sure that I learned to enjoy it and that I probably had right. some part of me that felt abandoned and where's my father and how come she's not here? But you don't notice those things as a child. You, you, they may become part of you, but um, and you've discovered them later. But the point is, uh, at the time, I said, oh, this is great. You know, I mean, if, we, if I went out playing with my friends after school, they'd have to go home when the streetlights came on. Or, you know, when it got dark. And in the winter, that was early. That was 5.30 or something. And, uh, and then I could stay out till 7.30 if I wanted to. Uh, or I could go home, 
fix some spaghetti, listen to the Lone Ranger. I would I would boil spaghetti and put butter on it and just listen to the Lone Ranger and um, dream and, and imagine and plan my life. I was a, I'm still a big planner. I'm very organized. Was it the fifth grade? Uh, one of those yearbooks yeah, you put grade. down. I'm going to be a comedian. Yeah, like, yeah, the fifth grade, uh, we, we were Sister Nina was our teacher. We had a great school. Great, 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 great Catholic school. Not like the kind you hear about. Not, not like one of the disciplinarian places. This was a, a liberal a Catholic school, progressive. I'll tell you more about it if, if we need to, but know that much. Wow. Sister Nina gave us an assignment in the fifth grade to write a little autobiography, which I think 11 years of age is a good time to look back. <laughs> so you wrote an autobiography, and, and, and I still have it. I still have it. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's a little thing with uh, maybe uh, eight inches by 10 inches across and, um, you know, taped together. And it's the story of my life. And then the last page was supposed to be what your, what your future is going to be. And on mine, I said, I want to be either an actor, comedian, impersonator, announcer, disc jockey, or trumpet player. All but one, you were. Yeah, right? well, the more or did you play the trumpet? Right. I don't know. Yeah, I played it one semester in high school, third chair trumpet. Yeah, that's when you play the song and you don't recognize the tune from, <laughs> from what you're playing. The other guy gets to play the tune. But um, I, I knew then what I wanted. And I, uh, as, as the subsequent years went on, 12, 13, 14, 15, I began to plan the steps that I might take. And then certain things in my life uh, in, in the later teens intervened and made those steps happen more easily, more quickly, made them more uh, defined. Helped, helped me to define what steps to take. For right. instance, joining the Air Force instead of waiting around to be drafted into the Army. Because in the New York pool, the draft pool was very large. So commonly you were drafted in your early 20s. And that did not fit my plan. <laughs> you know, and I did not finish high school. I quit in, in ninth grade. Uh, that was another part of my plan. I said, these people aren't teaching me what I need. But basically, you made all the checkpoints on your list, right? Pretty much so, with, with variations here and there that, that came up that were necessary. But Patrick was five years older than you. Pat was uh, either five or six, depending on what month it was. <laughs> yeah. But most brothers that are five years older yeah. beat the shit out of you. They yeah. torture you. Yeah, we had a period, maybe it was a year, like when he would boss me around. That was what, you, my, and my mother would come home and I'd tell, I'd complain to her, and she'd say, "You have no jurisdiction over him." That was how I learned words from my mother. Big really? words, nice words, interesting words. You have no jurisdiction over him. <laughs> and I would say, out in the street, he'd say, get home, get home at 6 o'clock. I'd say, you have no jurisdiction over me. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he, he bossed me around. So he was never a physical bully to me. No, he loved me. He said, the minute you came home from the hospital, I was so fascinated by you. And I was so happy that she had gotten us away from him, meaning my father. Oh. And I was so happy for you. He, he was truly not a, a jealous uh, brother of, of, you know, the new little baby. Now, what, is he still alive? Yeah, he's up in Woodstock. He mans the outpost up there. We have a house there called Outpost Charlie. It's 22 acres in Woodstock, to, between Woodstock and Saugerties. What did he do for a living along the way? He did a lot of things. He did a lot of different things. He's, he's a writer now, but uh, he did a lot of sales and stuff. You know, he didn't really have a whole kind of career path. The kind of thing where, you know, like I went to college and I became a lawyer. I became an engineer. I became a German teacher. He didn't do those things. He, he banged around. He loved his, uh, his, his, uh, his fun 
and uh, and he was a very very effective guy at the things he did, but it wasn't like you know. Yeah. Well, do you have any things you've done that were inspired by Patrick? Oh well, well I have been um, affected by everyone who I spent a little time with, in terms of uh, verbal uh, influences, and my brothers. Um, two th- we have affected each other and influenced each other a lot in our world worldviews, attitudes, um, the way we. Um, articulate them each of us he's a very colorful very colorful speaker and um and i have picked up uh cadences probably from him uh attitudes uh of speech um choices of words he has done the same from me so there's been a mutual uh cross you know cross pollination uh, for years and we we talk uh, probably on the phone once a week and i see him maybe five or six times a year when i'm in the east doing a concert so he's healthy and happy yeah yes sir and he's got a famous brother yeah yeah <laughs> and we, we have a lot of fun uh just just you know looking at things and, and talking about the world you don't know how many times people a matter of fact it happened to me day before yesterday because i mentioned on the air i was coming out to see you mm-hmm. and somebody said have him do the the new york hey father I don't know what it is, the chord you hit when you did that uh, that routine the first time, yeah. but I got the feeling that you enjoyed doing that voice. Those are pleasant memories, although... Well, I had a good ear for voices all my life, and, I, uh, and one of the things I did with that tape recorder was make up stories about neighborhood people, uh, the mostly figures of authority, the priests, the um, storekeepers, and the policemen in the neighborhood, other parents, and um, and make I made up stories about them. So yeah, you know I would talk like you know the other guys. It was a, it was a kind of a New York thing, you know this Irish, New York with certain guys who talk like that, you know. And it was all the guys who talk like that, you know. I come back, I was in the Second World War. I'm back now, and uh, I'm married, and I'm a happy guy. I bought the GI Bill, and oh, he's uh, well, that's my uncle, you know. He's over there. And it was just natural. And then same with the Italian guys, you know. You pick up the things, man. There are certain cadences, certain sounds and pronunciations, man. I grew up in a neighborhood right next to a black, uh, right next to Harlem. Uh, where we had an interesting neighborhood. It was a little Irish neighborhood with Columbia University all on one side, like including everything connected with Columbia, like Juilliard School of Music was there and the Union Theological Seminary, Jewish Theological Seminary. Riverside Church, St. Luke's Hospital, St. John the Divine Cathedral, all of that stuff on one side. And on the other side, Harlem. And we call our little neighborhood White Harlem because it sounded bad, you know? Where are you from? White Harlem. Hey. Sound tough, sound bad. The real name was Morningside Heights. Sounds so faggy. To us, anyway, faggy had nothing to do with uh, sex. A fag was just a sissy. Fag was a guy that wouldn't stay out late or go stealing or hitching on trucks or something, right? Ah, he's a fag, he's gotta go home. Go home, you fag! It's 10 o'clock, the big fag's going home. <laughs> queer, we knew what a queer was. Queer was a queer, right? Queer was, queer was the word you learned after homo. He's a homo. He's a homo, he's a homo. Then queer, queer. In fact, the difference between a fag and a queer, a fag was a guy that wouldn't go downtown with you beating up queers, right? (laughs) Part of that Irish street macho of the era. We were still into gang fighting then and all that. Uh, But uh, talking about being black, like I've been black since I was 14, I think, on and off, kind of sometimes darker than others, depending on who I was hanging out with. But, uh, well, I like to remind, you know, 
white folks that we're all Nixon's niggers now. <laughs> you have to remember that, man. We're all the same. No matter what your color is, Uh But it was very natural to become kind of uh, interested in black street culture because it's attractive. It's free, oddly enough. You know, the least free people are the freest to be free in their culture and their dealings. You get more eye contact from a black person in the street. They're easier with their body, man. They're more open with their songs, with their troubles. You know, it's, there's a freedom, there's a liberation in it, which we saw. And Dick and I noticed, like, if you take five white guys, and I mean Anglo, Irish, English, kind of my white guys, not some exotic middle European white guy, but you, my, this really white guy, Jim, you know? Like phosphorescent Irish skin, man. You see us glowing at the beach, right? I'm burning peeled, man. That's I never try to get a tan. I just try to neutralize the blue, you know? <laughs> if I can keep even with flesh tone, I'm happy, man. It's just too hard. You gotta go out seven minutes the first day, nine minutes the second day, 11 minutes the third day. Then it's cloudy for three days. You stay home on Sunday, you fall asleep drunk at the beach seven hours, burning peeled for a week and a half, you know? okay. So you get five white guys like this, my kind of guys from my neighborhood. You know, these guys here. Five white guys and put them with five black guys and let them hang around together for about a month. And at the end of the month, you'll notice that the white guys are walking and talking and standing like the black guys do. You'll never see the black guys saying, oh, golly, we won the big game today. Yes, sir. But you'll see guys with red hair and freckles named Duffy say, what's happening? Nothing to it, you got it, man. Hey, man, that's cool. Two later, baby. Shit, I don't know. And where do you think you're going now? I said, out, shit, man. Because the voices that I heard, you know, the Irish voices were like that. These were the guys I grew up with, the third generation, Eastern, even Irish, Catholic. Right, you see a working class accent, but you're on the rise, starting to vote Republican, move to Queens, right, starting to begin to be a managerial. <laughs> Those cats, the older guys were like this. This here was your uh, further back, your first generation, or whatever the second. These guys, Archie Bunker, I don't know your numbers. Archie Bunker, uh, Ralph Cramden, a lot of guys down in the series, your West Side Barfly. This guy was in your big war. I was in your World War II, my friend. This was one we was in, we wanted to win, and we won. This wasn't no police action, no draw. This here was your war, we wanted to win it, and we won it. <laughs> give me another one over there, Charlie. Back me up, give her one there, and then have one for yourself, and one for the guy that just came in. Where's, who, where's this pick, though? I didn't see this pick. Yeah. So uh, these guys here was the kind of voices that I grew up with. You know, hey, Father, can we have a basketball? We have really a lot of ball, right? Did you ever wish that you were born a little earlier so you could have been a real Bowery boy? I mean, in the no, little no. 30s or 40s, no? No, no. I, I lived in the best era this country has ever known, the immediate years after World War II. It has been downhill ever since. Uh, it, it, that, that, that kind of... Uh, an observation can often be just filed under, you know, old fart talk, and I understand that. <laughs> old farts always think everything was better before, and generally speaking, in their, they were right in their own, you know, the context that they bring to it. But there, it is a fact that at, at the end of that war, when the shortages were over, and they started making toys again, for one thing, with, that were made out of metal and rubber. You could have rubber and you could have metal again. You could have bubble gum again. Uh, that was a, a child's view of it. 
and and you didn't have to have sh- sugar being rationed and butter being rationed. You know, you could buy a, a, three pounds of butter instead right. of a quarter of a pound a week. So, uh, and that's what happened during the Second World War. A lot of Americans don't even know that. But um, all of that was a lot of fun. What, what I wouldn't I wouldn't have traded anything for the 40s and the 50s. And that's what that New York boy, when I finally do that Broadway show, New York Boy, it's about growing up in New York City in the 40s and 50s as a young boy on his own a lot and who roamed Manhattan and uh, and learned about the world and, and about voices and sounds and people and my mother teaching me words and stuff and, you know. Who's going to play you? I don't know. It's just uh, it's oh, a Oh, you must have thought about it. No, it's a one-man show. I thought it was a play. No, it's a, it's a, it's a reminiscence. Now, have you ever done anything uh, like a one-man show? Of- uh, you see, that's the thing. I, I, that's all I've ever done all my life. Well, I know, but I, I mean, mean, by definition, no, I've never done any Broadway things. That's that's why this would be special. It would be thematic. It would not be a series of bits, and although there would be places where the writer in me would know that one thing ends and nothing begins, but it wouldn't be presented as bits, and it would have an intermission, and it would have a run on Broadway in a legitimate theater, with the normal uh, things, dark on Monday, two shows Wednesday, two shows Saturday, you know, uh, the normal thing. And then you could tour a show like that. You you actually started getting high when you were, like, 12? 13 it was, 1950, yeah. Well, how do you remember it so precisely? What, well, because I know that I was in uh, eighth grade. By the time I was 13, I was on the street corner. Really? Yeah, by the time I was 13, I was part of uh, the guys on 123rd Street. Now, you describe yourself as being sort of an awkward guy when it comes to girls. No, not not awkward, just not a, not a big forward, not a big girl chaser. Well, how long did it take you before you finally got late? How old were you? Uh, 16, I think. But I got a lot of, I got a lot of, um, shall we call it activity, <laughs> all before that. And, Enticement? And, or and even after that. But uh, I, can, I remember all the people, but I'm not going to tell who they were. Well, I just remember if you oh, remember sure them. Oh, absolutely. Sometimes you oh, don't. No, I was a, I was a one-woman one guy. And, uh, I mean, I've always been that way, you know. I mean, I, I, need, to, uh, I need to fall a little bit in love. I, I was never a pussy chaser, per se, I although I understood the concept. And I was not averse to it when I went in the Air Force and became a disc jockey and found out that if you told somebody you'd play a record for them the next day <laughs> and put their name on the air of the number one station in town with a 52 share, that it meant something at a, at a, at a, at a dive in Bossier City, Louisiana. So I understood about sex. And, and in those years, I was probably a little more promiscuous and, and a party dude like that. But I was never a guy who was always on the hunt, always on the make. I, I knew a pretty face and I, I knew a nice... Uh, I knew a nice personality in a, in a girl, and I could be attracted to a girl, and that was different for me than just sex. Now, when you joined the Armed Forces, yeah. you were doing this gig uh, off an off-base radio station, KJOE. What was the have a slogan like the K-Joe. Big Joe? Or? No, KJOE was owned by a guy named Joe Monroe. It was a daytime station in Shreveport. Shreveport, Louisiana was a nine-station market. It was a very hot radio market. They had a 50,000-watt CBS outlet there, KWKH, where Louisiana Hayride came out of. They had a great black station. They had a great country station. And then they had a great all-news station. They were one of the first cities to have that. And we were the, one of the first rock and roll stations. They had jingles when you were there? Yeah, yeah. We had, we had, I had my, my whole theme. Get set, 
Get ready, get set to listen, because here we go on the George Carlin Show. Always done in Dallas. Nice trumpet solo in it for the pad in the middle. You said, okay, hey, we'll be playing you the new Connie Francis here. It's uh, We'll be here till 6 o'clock today. It's 25 degrees outside. You got a lot of the new ones. Pick hits of the week and got a couple of specials from Stan's record store. So hang around. We're going to do, do, do. Okay, then, Solid, how you doing? Lots of music coming up for you between now and 5.45. Got the brand-new Everly Brothers record, and we'll be playing both sides of it for you. In addition to listening to Elvis's latest, came out this week, and we'll get things started with the new one by Chuck Berry. Stick around. Good things happening here on 1480 at Carlin's Corner. The answer is yes, we were a top 40 station, fast paced. We were copying Todd Storrs, who had started uh, W, uh, let's see, um, KOMO, I guess it was, in Oklahoma City, right. and, uh, and and Gordon McClendon, who had Cliff in Dallas, KLIF. And these were top 40 pioneers. And top 40 meant you played only those 40 records, plus about 10 or 15 new ones, and then maybe a classic, a dusty disc. You know, <laughs> gold, we, dusty the, the golden disc. oldie came later, but dusty disc. Dust, I never heard that before. Yeah, we had played one of them. Well, Joe liked to have a different term than all the other people. And we had stickers on the cars. We had, you know, honk if you're listening to K-Joe. And we had special promotions and and stuff, and we had a 52 share in the nine-station market, and we were a daytimer, thousand watt. We had to get the audience back every morning because when when you go off the air, off the air right? at sundown, people wander around the dial, and you got to get them back. That means they got to like you. Well, my first job was on a daytimer in wow. Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, but I'm fascinated by the guy named, actually named Joe owned it. Yeah. It reminds me of like websites. Back in those days, there weren't enough you could actually pick one out. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, my name's Joe. You got a J-O-E? Sure we yeah, got it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Joe had time. I was a disc jockey when I was 19. I was lucky. I found a job like, you know, when I should have been uh, still learning about it. And uh, it inspired wonderful wino and Willie West, a character of mine. Radio stations, of course, change personnel rather rapidly. Willie West is no longer at Wonderful Wino. He's been replaced by Scott Lame. Hi, gang! Scott Lame here! The boss jock with the boss sounds from the boss list of the boss 30 that my boss told me to play! <laughs> right here on the Nifty 850. <laughs> Wonderful Wino Radio! Wonderful Wino! The big sound in the big town. Why no time? Bing bong. Five minutes past the big hour at five o'clock. Hey, we'll get started with one of the big sounds this week. Number five. Number five, number five, number five, number five, number five. Last week was number nine. Number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. Moved up four spaces. Four spaces, four spaces, four spaces, four spaces. Here it is, one of the new super groups. Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Sacco, and Vanzetti. And the ever-present footprints cross the shadows on the carpets of the hallways of the memories of your mind. 
Okay, kids, one of the big sounds and a great story behind that one. And you heard it first right here on Wonderful Wino. Wonderful Wino. Wino time, bing bong, five minutes past the big hour of five o'clock. Moving along with two in a row. A big double play, back-to-back -back sounds for you on the Scott Lane get-together on a wonderful Wednesday. Here's a tune that's really moving fast. When I say fast, it was recorded at nine o'clock this morning. <laughs> At 12 noon, it was number 15. At 3 o'clock, was the number one sound in town. And now it's a golden oldie. Solid gold to make you feel old. Solid gold to make you feel old. A golden flashback from the summer of 69, before you were born, remember, kids? Here they are, the red, white, and blue electric outdoor Protestant blues band. Jenny. Jenny. Okay. Okay, it's always good to get into some super gold. Super gold. Okay, we'll take about five minutes out here for the latest news from around the world from the award-winning Wino Newsroom. And then back with more of the big sounds for you here on the Scott Lane Get Together for one of Wednesday afternoon. Why no time? Ping pong. Five minutes past the big hour of five o'clock. <laughs> Soon as we come back, we'll be listening on medical records. Won't you take my heart by the donors? And my body is rejecting your heart by the recipient. We're talking to George Carlin. Three court martials and a bunch of Article 15. Yeah. Now, Article 15. Is Article right. 15 is like court martial light or what? Yeah, it is. In a, yes, it is. You can be demoted. You can be docked in pay. Uh, it's not as serious as a court martial. Uh, in the Navy, they're called captains mast. In the Army, they're called uh, Army and Marines has another name for them. But uh, it's an article. Uh, you're, you're prosecuted more or less in, in a way, not really. You're punished under Article 15 of the United States Code of Military Justice, and they, you know, they would take a stripe away. I went from Airman Basic to Airman Third to Airman Second to Airman Third to Airman Second to Airman Third to Airman Basic to Airman Third to civilian. <laughs> back to Airman Basic, and they said, "We'll see you later." Yeah. This was me. during my Air Force. Uh, stint. I was in a very elite maintenance squadron called the 376th Armament and Electronics Squadron. We re I repaired, I was, I had six months training in repairing bomb systems and cases, uh, uh, bomb and radar systems for the B-47. Uh, there were three computers. They were analog. They weren't digital computers then. They were analog computers. There was a tracking computer, a bombing computer, a navigation computer. There were two radars and there was a vertical periscope made by Bosch and Lohm for bombing people on nice days when you didn't need radar. You could see them in the sights. You say, there they are. Let's bomb these bastards. So uh, I, I was responsible for um, maintenance of that kind of a system called K-System. So George Carlin was, was actually servicing I, I kept the peace. bombers kept at the one time. We well, keep the peace. That was our slogan, we keep the peace. And you'll notice in the years I was in the Air Force, the Russians didn't go near us, didn't fuck with us at all. <laughs> because they knew I was in the service. Yeah, the, the guy, the guy working on computers, got high and went up, went to sleep. Was it? No, the you know I, I fell asleep on a, on a, on the ground. 
in a, it was a unit simulated combat mission, is where the whole base is on alert as if there's a, as if there's saboteurs on the base. Right. And they try to penetrate the base and put a sticker on a plane that says bomb. And then you, you know, you get bad security mark for that. And you went to sleep? I went to sleep in the crawlway. It was cold on that flight line that night. And I left my, uh, I guess they would call it a weapon, I left my gun downstairs. <laughs> uh, next to the power card. And the, the, this went to sleep. The sector sergeant drove around and said, well, there's a gun there. Uh, I'm sure they said, there's a weapon there. <laughs> and uh, where's the airman? And so they found me, and I was asleep. And that was called sleeping on guard duty. You were stoned, too. I mean, you got high in the Air Force. Yeah, but I wasn't. I don't think I was stoned that night. But by then, I might have, I might have been sleeping off some beer. But uh, I, 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 was, you know, I wasn't drinking out there. I was probably on duty eight hours and got tired. Now, you mentioned that back in those days, people wasn't even from, weren't even familiar with the smell yet. No, no. I used to smoke in public bathrooms all the time, in any city, in any state. You would sit down. You know, maybe you wanted to loosen your pants in case someone burst in, <laughs> so it would look like you were, you know, it's maybe they had a reason, right? right. And, uh, but I would light up a joint. The other stalls would be full, three or four stalls. Guys would be coming in and out, pissing. I'd be in a movie theater or, or any kind of place. And I would smoke a joint all the way through. Whole joint, dinch it at the end, and hang on to the roach. Put that in the little matchbox for the roach collection. <laughs> And what a collection it, it, it was. more of a concentration of THC <laughs> than the rest of the cigarette did. And, and yeah, well, they all went together. That yeah, one, there was oh, a yeah, memory. Yeah, and right. then you would save those roaches <laughs> from all of those ones. And that was a special one. But, but yeah, and I never never thought about it until much. And one time we were smoking a joint in, uh, in the movie theater. Downstairs, you know, you could in the, in New York, you could smoke in the balcony. You couldn't smoke in the orchestra, regular cigarettes. Right. And uh, we were about fifteen or sixteen, and we would bring beer into the movie, and we would smoke joints. And and some guy, well, you know how you, how silly it is when you're on pot, right. especially if you're fifteen. <laughs> and some guy with a flashlight comes down. And he says, all right, who's smoking a cigar? And we all just fucking cracked up, you know? It was just great. In 1951, I was 14. That's what I want to tell you. When grass uh, swept the neighborhood, we hadn't been into grass before that. We were into gang fighting and wine and beer in the park, man, and punching the shit out of people. <laughs> and having jackets with your names, man, and you had Debs. Your girls were your Debs. What are you? I'm a Tomahawk Deb! Yeah. Regular gangs, man, and turf and all that dumbass shit. And... Uh, Getting into fights over things like girls. He don't want to dance one of our debs, man. Hey, man. One, the, guy, the guy's dead, I know, man. Shit's on. Shit's on. It's gonna be a rumble. <laughs> yeah, man, we're gonna get the riffs and the condors and the beacons and the corner boys and the lamplighters and the chaplains and the bishop's man and the five satin gents and the dukes and the corner boys and the rams and the beacons, man. Did I say the beacons? We're getting the same guys, man. <laughs> Yeah, and then pot came along and gang fighting went away. Just in one semester in shop class, guys went from making zip guns to hash pipes, you know? It was just <laughs> instant. Cats would say, I'll catch you after the fight. Straight. <laughs> On the corner. Cool. Speaking of pot, you went to work at W-E-Z-E. Wheeze? Wheezy, yeah. Wheezy? Yeah, they were a network. <laughs> what kind of network, they have? No, they were a network affiliate. They were NBC. They had soap operas. They had news on the hour from NBC. Well, I love this story. You were there for three months, and you got busted or fired, actually. You drove the mobile news van to New York yes. to buy a pot. Now, right. my first question is, why do you have to drive from Boston 
all the way to New York. Uh, was I, the pot that scarce or that good down in New York? I mean, why I, I don't remember having any connections in in Boston ever, uh, and I was only there three months, and oh. I only hung around these radio people who were kind of straight. New York was where my friends were, oh, and all my connections. So I probably went down for the fun of the weekend, and I knew I would buy pot in the process. Did you look for news to justify you taking no, the news? No, no, no. In fact, in fact, they called, they reached me at my mother's house, and said, uh, "What are you doing down there?" And I said, "Well, I was just you know a lark and something like that." They said, "Well, we got a prison break at Walpole Prison here." I said, well, cover the next one. I said, they got one of them every month at Walpole. Because <laughs> Walpole was like a sieve. The guys were breaking out of there all the time, just walking out. So I said, cover the next one, you know, and they didn't like that. Further further along in your radio career, you bumped, you met up with Jack Burns. And you yeah, right in, though, in that, in that place. That's where I met Burns. We were roommates along with the third guy, Ron Ruth. And we roomed together, and Jack and I found we had a great comic affinity. We both did uh, working-class characters. Wow. And we both could think funny fast and ad lib and in- improvise with each other. Right. So we met there, established that rapport. Then I left. Uh, I got fired. And then uh, eventually I got a job in Fort Worth in a really great t- top 40 station, number one in the Fort Worth market. And I had a lot of fun because it was loose. You didn't have as many spots. They had a lot of spots on that show. Did you ever do a live commercials on the radio? Yeah, we, I read them all the time at night on uh, on that, that shift. Did you have those things where during the holidays... So-and-so's lumbers say, drive carefully. Yeah, Those little 10-second yeah. jobs. Yeah, yeah. The Christmas, on Christmas. I got a great recording, by the way, of Gary, um, Gary Owens, you know, the announcer from sure. Leffen, of him trying to do a Merry Christmas, you know, 10-second, 15-second Merry Christmas wish from Preparation H, which he was real, and he had to read it, and he starts laughing, and it's the funniest thing. It's one of those underground audio things. Right. You and Jack went, who, by the way, people didn't know, I didn't know for a long time, went on to be Burns and Shriver. Yes, yeah, Burns and Shriver, and, and he was the one who said, Cab, 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 right. Cab. Huh? What, huh? Yeah. Cab! Here we go, here we go, here we go. Where you going? Uh, take me to Hotel Whitman, room 518. They stopped me on the fourth floor. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I tell you, that's quite a city you got out there, what you call your New York. Yeah, that's what we call it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love it. I love New York. I love it. What do they call that? The Big Apple? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. 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 Of grace and majesty. What are you, some kind of poet? Well, I used to write for the Newman Club newsletter. You know, it's not that big. Newman Club? That's a B'nai B'rith organization, isn't it? <laughs> you're, uh, you're Jewish, huh? Well, I'm working with my hat on. Figure it out. Oh. <laughs> hey, I, uh, I was just back at that place where you picked me up. Yeah, that's where you got in, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> They, uh, they call that the Hot Spot Club. Uh-huh. That's where all the girls are. They're all in there. Yeah. I walked in the door. There must have been 10 or 12 of them all over me. Blondes, brunette, redheads, they were all over me. I didn't go up to them. They come up to me. They come up to me. I didn't go up to them. They come right up to me. Yeah, it sounds like they come right up oh, to you. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this one girl was really all over me. Blonde girl. Good-looking blonde. Blonde. Good-looking blonde girl. Blonde girl. Huh? Good-looking? You know her? <laughs> sounds familiar. Yeah, well... 
I guess there's a little life left in the old troopy yet, huh? Uh, huh? 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you guys eventually went out to... I can't believe you went out to Los Angeles. Yeah, we left Fort Worth. We had good radio jobs. And you get a, you get a morning show in Los Angeles, yeah, number two market. And 90 days later, is that true that you quit? Or yeah, yeah, we quit to go to, go to work in the, in the coffee house because we had driven to California to become... Uh, Comedy stars and nightclubs, you know, to start a nightclub to career. become stars. Yeah, just, yeah. Did you absolutely. believe it was going to happen? Absolutely, right. absolutely. We drove uh, west from uh, Fort Worth on Highway 80 in my brand new '54 Dodge Dart Pioneer, <laughs> a real great two door with the blue tinted windows, AM/FM radio, which was uh, an interesting. FM. Yeah, at that time, and we drove due west. Toward El Paso, which is the first long, long leg of that trip. And at that time, the Marty Robbins four and a half minute Columbia Records El Paso song. Down, out in the heart of the West Texas, in love with a Mexican girl. Well, uh, the night, the midnight guy, Jack and I just left the air. He was my nighttime newsman. We finished our, our shift, got in the car. It was already packed, and we went west. And at about a quarter after 12, we're listening to our own station. And Mike Ambrose, the midnight to dawn guy, he says he talks about us leaving and everything, you know. And then suddenly you hear the Marty Robbins song. And it was just great. And, and we were, that, that road was so straight. We would, and it was a moonlit night. It may not have been a complete full moon, but it was a very bright moon. And we would turn the lights off of the car you couldn't see anything except starlight and moonlight on the road and you could actually drive by it it was a little scary but you could drive by it and it was the most compelling and thrilling thing and we were uh, after our fame and fortune it was 1950 it was 1960 very early 60 so i was still 22 and Jack was 24. Now, when you got out there, after three months, you started doing, uh, went to do clubs. Uh, Lenny Bruce has been credited with discovering you, whatever. Yeah, but could you describe the first time you met? Was well, well, the thing is this. Advantage? Jack and I were very lucky. We found a little guy, a, a little manager guy, Murray Becker. We had gotten the job in the coffee house ourselves, and uh, we were rehearsing our, our stuff one night in, in the in the radio station. It was also a daytimer, K-Day in L.A., 1540. And 50,000 watts, you could hear it from Nome to to Tierra del Fuego, but only if you were standing in the center of the street because it was a very directional (laughs) signal. It was very long and narrow. You couldn't get it in Fresno. But if you just missed it by a mile, you could could get it. If you got off the freeway, you lost it. Yeah, so anyway, (laughs) K-Day. So so we're we're rehearsing one night when K-Day's closed, and and, and this guy came by, and it was Murray Becker, and Murray Becker says, hey, I can help you out. I'm a manager, and this and that. I mean, I used to uh, road manage Rowan and Martin. I know my way around. I can get you this, I can get you that. We said, okay, let's give it a try. And he says, I know Lenny Bruce. Lenny was in the Navy with me. So I was doing an impression in our act at that time of Lenny Bruce and an impression of Mort Saul. I did impressions of them in spite of the fact that no one knew them, you know, except inside hippie. And when I say hippie, I don't don't mean mean hippie from the 1960s. Hippie was a word way before those people showed up. And it just meant finger poppers and, and, and guys who wore cufflinks and hung around clubs and said, give me another double bourbon, Jack. What are you having over there? That was a hippie at that time. A guy, he was hip. So anyway. Sort of like one of Frank's posse, right? Yeah, that's right. That's what, that, those, were guys, those were guys. Who, so, so those guys knew Lenny Bruce, and they knew Mort Saul, and the hip people in the, night, in the small nightclubs and in the jazz clubs and in the coffee houses knew Lenny. And that's where we wanted to work, and that's where we were working. So I did these impressions. Let, he got Lenny to come in 
Lenny liked it very much and called and got us an agency. We didn't have an agent. We had a little manager guy. Right. And we were on our own. It was our first job ever, six weeks, $125 a week for the team. And For both of you? Yeah. And um, How the hell did you live in L.A. at 60 bucks? Of course, that was a while Well, ago. we had over $50 saved. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, those darts get good mileage, yeah, too, and, right? And we got $300 advance for an album. We were only four weeks in the business. We recorded an album on Era Records. They had Gogi Grant and uh, that guy, 100 Pounds of Clay. Oh, that, G. McDaniels. Yeah, they had, oh, yeah, they had him, too. Herb Newman, 300 bucks. But anyway, here's the deal. Here's the deal. So Lenny came in got us an agency. The agency was a big agency called GAC, Not not quite as big as William Morris, but the same kind of scope. Beverly Hills, London, New York, Chicago, all that. They got us a job in Chicago, and it was our, it was a real nightclub called the Cloister Inn, and Lenny got us this agency by, by telling them about us, and we got a telegram the next day. It said, I still have it. It said, it said, based on Lenny Bruce's rave reaction, hereby authorized West Coast office to sign Burns and Carl an exclusive representation contract in all fields. Jack Sobel, president, GAC, really? in New York. So based on Lenny's say-so, we got an agency. And that's how Lenny, quote-unquote, I don't think discovers the right word, those things never happen. What happened was he gave us a big boost at a very important time, once again, prematurely for me. Everything in my career and my life has happened quickly and early in a very lucky fashion. Right. Now... You mentioned Mort Saul. Uh, obviously, yeah. Mort was impressed because... Mort came in, too. He was actually... It says in your bio a lot of times that you were on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, but this was before Johnny Carson, actually, when Jack Parr left right and Mort was filling in. There was an interim period when they were trying people out between uh, Parr after he retired and Carson. Right. You're right. And one of the guys who had a week of his own was Mort Saul. Well, Mort knew me because he had helped Burns and Carlin get into the hungry eye when Jack and I were together. And we did The Tonight Show then. It was the Jack Parr show. Right. It didn't amount to anything for us, but it was a very nice thing to put on the little ads in Allentown and Springfield and Decatur. You know, <laughs> right. Fresh from the Jack Parr show. Right. So, um, yes, yeah, so, so Mort Saw helped us as a team, and then he put me on the air. He was your first solo. Yeah, it was my first solo uh, television in 1962. I was at the living room in New York. It's 8 o'clock in Los Angeles. It's 9 o'clock in Denver. It's 10 o'clock in Chicago. In Baltimore, it's 6.42. Time for the 11 o'clock report. First of all, the headlines. Welcome Wagon runs over newcomer. Good Humor Man slays 10. Pen Pal stats pal with pen. Pediatrician dies of childhood disease. And Jacques Cousteau drowns in bathtub accident. We'll be back with full details in just a moment after this word from Cooley's Cigarettes. You know something, Bill? These cigarettes of mine, they taste like crap. <laughs> Say, Dan. <laughs> Crappy taste. Why don't you try the cool, refreshing taste of Coolies? Coolies, eh? 
You smoke them? Nope, found them in the subway toilet. <laughs> and now back to the news. History's 135th heart transplant operation was performed yesterday in New York City. One unusual note, the heart transplant took place in Central Park at midnight, and the donor's family was not consulted. <laughs> Dr. Timothy Leary's brother, really Leary, today announced the formation of a new religion, which teaches that when you die, your soul goes to a garage in Buffalo. <laughs> Police today arrested Margaret Fulcrum, a 45-year-old unregistered nurse, and charged her with accepting collect obscene telephone calls. <laughs> Famed television announcer Charlie the Tuna was found dead today of mercury poisoning. <laughs> Sorry, Charlie. Good news from the Far East. No one was killed in Vietnam today. However, three people died of old age at the Paris Peace Talks. <laughs> and former French President Charles de Gaulle rose from the dead today, just to show everyone he could really do it. <laughs> well, that's it from the news desk for the latest in sports. Here's Biff Barf. Good evening, sport fans. Biff Barf here in the Biff Barf Sportlight Spotlight, picking them up and barfing them right back at you. I call them the way I see them, and if I don't see them, I make them up. No games today. However, we do have a few late football scores still coming in from the far west. Guam Prep, 45. Marshall Islands, 14. Mindanao A&M, 27. Molokai, 10. Caltech, 14.5. MIT, 3 to the 4th power. William and Mary, six. Nick and Tony, 105. And here's a partial score, Stanford, 29. Well, that's it, kids. That's it from the scoreboard in the world of golf today in the Fats Domino Desert Classic. First round leader, Willie Water, has it had a birdie, two eagles, and a duck this afternoon. And meanwhile, the favorite, Gary Fairway, was way behind, scoring a record 609 strokes on the front nine when he accidentally stepped aboard a bus to Minneapolis while playing a difficult lie from the highway. Well, that's it, sport fans. Join me tomorrow afternoon on the ever-widening world of sports when I'll be presenting the national two-man pall-bearing championships. And next week, I'll be a guest hunter on American Sportsman. Six of us are going to kill a rabbit. <laughs> now, with the latest in weather, here's Al Sleet, your hippy-dippy weatherman. Hey! Hey! Hey, pasta! What you call your possum? Al Sleet, hippy dippy weatherman, brought to you by Parsons Pest Control. Do you have termites, water bugs, and roaches? Parsons will get rid of the termites and water bugs and help you smoke the roaches. Present temperature is 68 degrees at the airport which is stupid, because I don't know anyone who lives at the airport. <laughs> Downtown, it's much hotter. Downtown's on fire, man. Now, if you'll take a look at our national weather map, you'll see that we don't have one. So try to picture last night's map. 
in your mind. Remember all those lines and numbers. Weather was dominated by a large Canadian low, which is not to be confused with a Mexican high. <laughs> Tonight's forecast, dark. <laughs> Continued mostly dark tonight. Turning to widely scattered light in the morning. <laughs> That's it from Al Sleet. Don't forget, if you don't like the weather, move. Thanks, Al. Always a great report from Al Sleet. I think we all know by now, Al's been into the mushrooms. <laughs> well, that just about wraps it up on the 7 o'clock report. Join us again tomorrow night at 9 for the 11 o'clock news. In the meantime, stay tuned for a brand new comedy series, Double Trouble, the story of Siamese twins joined at the lips. <laughs> And the merry mix-ups that occur when one gets married and the other has root canal work the same day. <laughs> Good night, all.